Today is a very, very special and important day. Today is not just the finish of our Psalm 23 series, as important and special as that is, but um, today is my daughter's birthday. Yeah. And I looked at the calendar, and her birthday falls on a Sunday, like I think like twice in the next 25 years or something like that. So I'm going to just take a little bit of senior pastor privilege with you all for a moment. Is that okay? Because this is a very special day that it's a Sunday and it's my daughter's birthday. And I would love to be with my daughter right now, but I'm with you, okay? And I love you guys and I'm glad I'm here. I'm glad I'm here. But she can't wait for me to get home and open her presents and stuff. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to sing my daughter a happy birthday. Is that all right? Yes! Yes! And if you're online right now, you're going to sing wherever you are around the world. Okay, and I'm going to video it. Uh, and she's going to absolutely hate it. <laughs> Hi, baby. How are you? Your daddy loves you very much. And I am working right now, although it's not really work, but I'm here right now. And I know you'd love me to be with you, but I'm going to be with you real soon. But guess what? There's a lot of people here that love you too. And we want to sing you happy birthday. All right? One, two, three. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, dear Mia. Happy birthday to you. All right, enough of that. Okay. Um, how are you? You well? We're finishing our series in Psalm 23 today, and I'm super excited about that. If you've been coming to the Vine for the last few weeks, hopefully this has been an encouraging series for you, and we're finishing on a note of great encouragement. I just absolutely love the way that David finishes off the psalm, because the psalm's been pretty challenging, Uh, and if you've been coming here over the last few weeks, you would have noticed that, that David uses metaphor and imagery to shake up the status quo, to challenge us deeply on how we understand God, and also how we are to live in this world around us, and uh, there's been some weeks over this series where uh, there's been a pretty deep uprooting and a pretty, pretty strong move of the Spirit to shake the dust off of us and get us into a place where we can really walk with God. But then David gets to the end of the psalm and he wants to finish on a note of encouragement, a note of life, a note of inspiration and love. And that's really what's on my heart for all of us here this morning online in this room. I want you to know one really critical thing. And that is that God is pursuing you right now. That he loves you so much that he is never gonna give up on you. That he is pursuing you, chasing you down, hunting you down, wanting to be with you, wanting to shape and form you into the person that he has and that he will do everything possible to make his goodness be known to you to make his love be known to you. And I don't know how you're feeling today. I don't know how you are coming into this room, coming into this moment. Some of you have had amazing weeks. Some of you have had challenging weeks. Some of you are in a season of great like inspiration right now. Other of you are in seasons of difficulty and trial. And a number of you have been coming forward and sharing some of those trials with us. And we're with you as a church community. Whatever is going on in your life right now, God is pursuing you. He loves you so much and he wants you to know what is on his heart for you. And he will do whatever it takes to make his heart manifest and known 
to you. I want to I share a little story about that and how I've experienced that a little bit in, in my life as we start our time together today. Um, back in 2003, which seems a long time ago, almost 20 years ago, I went to the Hillsong Conference in Sydney, Australia. And I don't know if you've ever been to the Hillsong Conference but, or a conference like it, but in, 20, uh, in 2003, uh, the Hillsong Conference was 30,000 people. They had 30,000 people signed up for this conference. The venue that was hosting the conference only sat 15,000 people. So every single main session, they had to run it twice to get everybody in that session. So literally, they would get everybody into this room, all 15,000 people in the room. They would do the whole main session. Then immediately, the 15,000 people would leave and a new 15,000 people would come in and they would do that whole session all over again with the new 15,000 people. And that would happen throughout the whole conference. So when you signed up for the conference that year, you were given a little ticket that said, you're gonna go to the first part of that session or you're gonna go to the second part. And you'd get the ticket and that's how you would know which session you were going to go into. Now in 20, uh, 2003, about 50 of us from the Vine went to the conference together. We traveled together. We got all the tickets for the, the same sessions together. It was an amazing experience. But on one afternoon, on the Thursday afternoon of the conference, um, I couldn't make the session that our whole team was going to be attending. So I had to go to the alternate session of that particular time. So I went to the main desk and I said, look, can I exchange my ticket? They're like, yes, you can. And they gave me a ticket for that other session. Now, this was a brand new 15,000 people that I had not seen because I was in the other sessions and in that track for the whole conference up to that point. But I remember I'm an extrovert, right? Uh, and I love being around people, but I was super excited to go to a session of the conference completely on my own, not having to be a leader of the 50 people from the vine that was at the conference, not having to think about anything. I could just go myself, worship the Lord, be left alone. No one would know me, completely anonymous. I was super excited about it. So I get into the main session, 15,000 people that I've never seen before, and the worship starts. And again, if you've never been in an experience where 15,000 people are gathering to worship Jesus, it is amazing. And so we start worshiping, and my arms are up in the air like, like they are here at the Vine every week, and I'm just worshiping away. And as soon as I start to worship, God gives me a word, a prophetic word for the young lady standing in front of me. And he says this, Andrew, you need to tell the young lady standing in front of you that her husband really does love her. Uh-oh. Now, let me explain something. When I sometimes get these kinds of words, if they are like about a relationship with a woman or something like that, I would normally take my wife, Christine, and I would say, hey, Chris, I've got this word for this young lady in front of us. You know, would you deliver that word? And it would be Chris that would pass on that word. But I was on my own. No one else was there. And I'm worshiping away, and God is relentless. He's like, Andrew, you need to tell the young lady in front of you that her husband really does actually love her. And I'm thinking to myself, what if she's not even married? And as she's worshiping away, I'm trying to look for a wedding ring on her finger, <laughs> which is really creepy. That's kind of creepy that I'm sort of like looking at this and there's no wedding ring on her finger. And I'm thinking to myself, this would be the most embarrassing thing. Could you imagine me leaning forward, tapping her on the shoulder and saying, excuse me, we don't know each other, but I'm a pastor from Hong Kong. And I just want you to know that the Lord you know, has a word for you and that your husband really does love you. Ah. Uh, I'm not married. <laughs> Have a great conference. You know, like, like, so I, I'm worshiping and God is saying, you got to give this word. And here's what I say to God. I say, God, I'm not a prophet. 
I'm not a prophet. Like I'm a, I'm a pastor. I'm not a prophet. That's not, a, that's not something that, that a gift that I walk in. That's not something that I, I generally do. And I'm not a prophet. Just find someone else. And so I carry on worshiping, slightly guilty, but carrying on worshiping. And God's got such a sense of humor, hasn't he? So as I continue to worship, guess what God does? He then gives me a word for the guy standing on my right, right next to me. And he says, oh, Pastor Andrew, you need to tell the guy on your right. You know, he's a pastor of a church. And, and, and you need to tell him that I'm about to pour out my spirit on his church like never before. In fact, it's going to be like an Ezekiel 42 moment. Like the river of God is going to flow out of the sanctuary into his town. And it's going to be a revival of the spirit of God happening. You need to tell this pastor that I'm about to move like a river in his church by my spirit. And I'm feeling this whole thing in me. And I'm wondering, I don't even know if he's a pastor. And so as I'm worshiping, I'm sneaking glances at him to see maybe he looks like a pastor. I don't know what a pastor looks like. But as I'm looking at this guy, he doesn't look anything like a pastor, okay? He actually looked like somebody in the Hell's Angel Motorcycle Club, okay? He had a leather jacket on. He had a big beer belly. He had like a big bushy beard. This guy did not look like what I thought maybe pastors, I don't know, whatever it looked like. But I'm kind of sneaking glances at him. He's worshiping away, but he's suddenly realizing that the weird guy next to him is keeping looking at him. So he starts sneaking glances at me, sneaking glances at him. And as he's like sneaking glances at me, he starts to turn towards me. I, I start to turn towards him. And as we lock eyes together, and I, this is a true story, we lock eyes together, we turn to each other, and we spontaneously hug. You know, like, like a man hug. You know, like, this guy never spoken to him. We're like hugging, right? And like, this is the moment, like my, my mouth is uncomfortably close to his ear, right? This is the moment where I could go, hey buddy, I just want to pass on a word, you know, maybe blah, 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 you know, Ezekiel 42, the river of God through your church, you know, but I don't. And here's what I say, as I'm literally hugging this guy, God, I'm not a prophet. I don't move with the gift of prophecy. That's not a gift that I generally have. And we embrace and then we let go and we both carry on worshiping as if nothing had happened at all. <laughs> well, that night, I get back to the hotel and I meet up with the rest of the Vine crew and I share with them the story. I'm like, oh, it's so funny. I was on my own and I had this word for this girl, you know, about her husband and this guy next to me about his church, you know. And I'm like, I'm not a prophet. So I just freaked out and I didn't say anything. And they're like, Andrew, come on. And they're like, look, if you ever meet these guys ever again in the whole conference, you have to tell them the words. Promise us that you'll tell them the words. And I thought to myself, there's 30,000 people at this conference. There's 15,000 people in a stream that I'm not even in, and I'm not supposed to be in that. And I'm like, yeah, sure, sure. If I see them again, I'll totally tell them the word, thinking I'm never going to see them again in my life, right? That night, I go to sleep, and as I'm praying before I go to sleep, I say to God, God, look, honestly, if you give me the opportunity to meet those two people again, I will, I will promise you, I will share those words with them. Well, the next morning, Friday morning, I'm in the first session with all of us at the Vine. We're there, and, and I'm just before the session starts, I'm standing up, and I'm scanning the 15,000 people in the auditorium. Now, I don't really remember what the young lady looked like, but I remember what the Hell's Angel guy looked like, right? So I'm looking around, trying to find Mr. Beard guy with the leather jacket, right? And as I'm looking around, I, I kind of scan around, and I get to, and I notice suddenly, he's standing at the end of the row, staring right at me. 
He's literally standing at the end of the row and he's staring at me and he eyes me and he kind of like does a little nod and he starts to shimmy down the row whilst everybody else is like moving out the way, right? Shimmying down the row right towards me. And he gets right up to me and before I can say anything, he goes this, he goes, mate. He's Australian, right? So okay, I won't do the accent. But anyway, he goes, he goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Damien, the Aussie's like, please don't, mate, don't, 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 don't do the Aussie accent. I think I'm pretty good at it. But anyway, we'll, we'll leave it. Um, he's like, mate, he's like, you probably don't remember me. And I'm like, <laughs> kind of remember you. He's like, you probably don't remember me. But, but, but we were sitting together at the main conference yesterday and I went to bed last night and, and God gave me a word for you. Uh, and, and God gave me a word for you. And, and I promised God that I, if I ever saw you in the conference again, I'd give you that word. And I'm like, dude, what is the word? And he said, God wants you to know that you're a prophet. believe it? He's like, God wants you to know that you're a prophet and, and, and that you should operate in, with the gift of prophecy. And I'm like, dude, sit down because I got a word for you, right? <laughs> and I said, you won't believe this, but I had a word for you in, in our service yesterday in the, in the, in the session. And I, and I said to God, I'm not a prophet. And he's like, well, what's the word? And I said, okay, well, the word is this. And, and I start to kind of speak uh, Ezekiel 42 over him. And I'm like, you know, God wants to move a spiritual revival in your church where it's like a, a river will flow out of your church. And he starts weeping and weeping. And I've never seen like a guy like that just weeping and weeping. And, and and, and, and he goes, man, you would have no idea. He said, he said, I'm a pastor of a small church about an hour and a half north of Sydney. And he said, we've just uh, purchased a building in the center of our little town, and we've just built our little sanctuary. And he said, two weeks ago, uh, our, our sanctuary uh, is on a site that's over the main water pipe of the town, and two weeks ago, the water pipe burst and flooded our new church, and all of the equipment inside was ruined. And he said, like, it was like the worst experience that we've ever had. And I, I came to this conference going, God, I need to know what, what future there is. And we've lost all of our money and the equipment. And he said, now you've come and, and told me that, that, it, that this is a, a metaphor, a symbol, that there's a revival that's about to happen in my church. The water is going to run out of our sanctuary, like the Spirit of God into our town. And he's like laughing and he's crying and I'm crying. And I'm thinking to myself, how amazing is God that he would do something like that and I never saw the woman again, and I pray and believe that somebody else more faithful than I am gave her that word, and she understood that about her husband. But isn't it amazing that God pursues us? Like, like really pursues us. Like, can orchestrate something out of 30,000 people so that I got to know something about myself that I needed to know that was on God's spirit for me. And that word has sustained me in 20 years of ministry. One of the things that I say to my staff now is I have two anointings, a shepherd and a prophet. Whereas back in 2003, I would never would have said that. I needed something in my spirit to begin that part of my ministry development. This man needed something and God had both in his heart and you need to know that God will pursue you. He loves you so much that he will orchestrate crazy things. And sometimes it'll happen in moments like that where it's a prophetic crazy thing. But other times he'll speak to you out of a movie. He'll speak to you out of a conversation with a friend over coffee. He'll speak to you because you're, you're studying God's word. He'll, he'll come in in a moment and, and it will come out of the blue or, or it'll be a conversation or something like that and suddenly you'll know that God is trying to connect the dots for you. Sometimes it will happen sitting in a service like this. Sometimes it will happen sitting in a boardroom when you never expected. But he is pursuing you. And as David finishes Psalm 23, 
with all this incredible imagery that he's given to us. He's like, I need them to know that God is pursuing. I wanna read you this from Psalm 23, verse six. Here's what David finishes the Psalm with. Surely, goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And I think David would say it this way also. Surely, goodness and love will follow you all the days of your life and you will also dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Surely goodness and love will follow us all of the days of our lives, and we together will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. What a promise. And I want you to see how he starts this. He uses the most emphatic verse uh, word that he uses throughout the whole of uh, all of the verses. He starts with surely. Now this word surely, uh, it's not often used in scripture and, and David ha- doesn't use it in many other places, but he puts it here because surely literally translated means beyond a shadow of doubt. And he wants to start and say, I want you to know something about God. I want you to know something that God does that I have absolutely no doubt about. Absolutely none at all. In fact, I will take this to the bank. I know for sure and for certain that these activities are what God does. Surely, without a shadow of a doubt, he starts. And, and then at the end of the first verse or end of the first sentence, he then says this, all the days of my life. He bookends the activity that he's about to tell them about with this, I have no doubt about it, and that it happens every single day of my life, all the days of my life, the good days and the bad days, the days when I feel spiritual, the days when I'm in sin, the days when I'm doing something I shouldn't be doing, the days when I feel like I'm right in line with God, when I was young, when I'm old, it doesn't matter, every single day of my life. Why is David saying that? Because he's about to tell us something that he has no doubt about that's not connected to him. All the days of my life, because it's not actually about me. Like what he's about to say is actually about God. And he goes, I know emphatically, without a doubt, that God does these things every single day of my life, whether I feel it, whether I know it, whether I acknowledge it, he's still doing it. And he wants to almost tell his people the same thing. And I I kind of feel my spirit today to want to try and communicate this to you. No matter what is happening in your life, these two things God is doing for you. What are the two things? He says, goodness and love will follow me. Goodness and love, your goodness and love. David brings these two things together because it's really important that they come together. Let me explain quickly both. Goodness is the Hebrew word lob, and it literally means abundant blessing or lavish benefit. But when it's used predominantly in the Old Testament, it's used to speak about God's character and his nature. It's an attribute of God. And in particular, it's talking about God's holiness. When we say God is good, what we're doing is we're actually making a statement about his character and his nature. We're saying that he is holy. He is set apart. When we say God is good, we're defining something about him. And here's what we're defining. We're defining that there's no evil in him. There's no harm in him. There's no anger in him. There's no malice in him. He's good and faithful and trustworthy that we can actually rely on him. What we're saying when we declare that God is good is that he is different to us. 
The actual phrase of it actually has in mind Genesis 1 and 2, Adam and Eve in the garden. They got to experience the goodness of God before Genesis 3 when sin came into the world. In Genesis 1 and 2, God sets up the world as it was intended to be, the way it was supposed to be, shalom and peace. And God came and communed with Adam and Eve in the coolness of the night in the garden, and they could feel his shalom, his peace. That's his goodness. His goodness is the declaration that this is the way the world should be, his holiness, his goodness, his intention for the world. And what happened was in Genesis 3, everything now has been tainted by sin. Everything now, humanity. Humanity and creation now lives in the opposite of that. So when we say God is good, we're actually making a declaration, actually a prophetic statement that God is different from this thing. This thing that's tarnished and hurting and broken. His goodness sets apart from that. Now this is really important, church, because very often when we as Christians understand or use the term goodness, we normally connect it to something happening in our lives. Let me be honest about this. We often will say, God is good. I got my promotion. Or we'll say, God is good. My relationships are going well right now. God is good. I made a lot of money this month on sales. God is good because my health is good. In other words, we define God's goodness by something that's happening for benefit in our lives. Are you with me? We gotta be really careful That's not what David is setting up here. This is why we actually can say that phrase, God is good all the time. The cheesiest Christian phrase ever. I remember growing up hearing that phrase, thinking to myself, I can't say that because there's so much in my life that doesn't feel good. There's so much in my life that's broken. There's so much in my life that's pain. How can I say God is good all the time because I don't feel it? And David's saying it's not about what you feel, it's about who God is. God can be good all the time because his goodness is not related to whether you feel like he's being good. His goodness is not related to whether there's some benefit that's happening in your life. He's just plainly set apart as good. So a few weeks ago when I told you that I spent those six hours by my father's deathbed, the worst six hours of my life, the most horrible, darkest valley I've ever been in, God was still good in that moment. When my wife and I discovered we couldn't have our own biological children, when when I discovered that I was infertile and unable to father children and my dreams for being a biological father were torn to shreds, God was still good. When that man had that thing happen in his church and the pipe burst and everything flooded and all his equipment was ruined, God was still good. Because when we say God is good, we're defining an attribute of him rather than our experience of it. We may not always feel he's good. We may always not know, always know that he's good. And tangibly, we might feel like the opposite is true. And David's saying, you need to understand his goodness is absolutely separated from your experience. Are you with me? Yeah. Now, if that was all he was saying, that would be kind of weird because that's kind of like some theological concept. And how does that then become a reality for us? That's why he says, goodness and love. Love here is the Hebrew word chesed. And chesed means literally, uh, it means loving kindness or loving faithfulness. See, the chesed of God is the idea of his grace and his forgiveness and his unfailing love to humanity. This word was first used and described about God at Mount Sinai 
where God comes down to a newly freed people out of their slavery. And God says, I need to define for you who I am. And I need you to understand who you are. I will write this day, say, I am covenanting my love to you. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I'll never remove my love from you. It is my chesed. It is loving kindness, loving faithfulness. You can absolutely bank on it. And it will forgive all sin. It will remove you from your pressures. It will take you into a better life. It'll bring you into relationship with me. See, his goodness is true, but without his love, we will be naturally separated from his holiness. It's his hesed that brings us into his goodness. Are you with me, church? Because you can't get into that goodness because you're separated from it. Sin taints you from the goodness of God. So it's goodness and love because the love is the thing that purchases for you your ability to be restored in relationship with him. And he's saying, do you see this? See, it's my goodness that leads you to repentance. It is my love that restores you out of your brokenness. It's my goodness that is like the prodigal son picking himself up from the muck of the pigsty and saying, surely it was better in my father's house. It's love that's the father picking up his robe and running in the field to embrace the returning prodigal. These two things must sit together. God's goodness that's separate from our experience and his love that defines our experience in him. Goodness and love must come together. Is this helpful? Now, this is the bit that blows my mind. Then David says, these two things will follow me. The attributes of God's goodness, his holiness, his purity, his set-apartness, and his love that forgives me and restores me and renews me and brings me back into relationship with him. These two things will follow after me. The word follow there is the Hebrew word radap, and it literally means to chase to be pursued, to be hunted down. It's imagery of a hunter hunting something. And I know that image is a bit strange because God's not out to kill us, right? But he is out to find us. He's out to sort us out. He leaves the 99 and goes and picks up that one sheep. He tells a pastor from Hong Kong about some crazy Ezekiel 42 thing so that a pastor north of Sydney can know that everything's going to be all right. He's a God who hunts us, pursues us, and has a word for us because he wants goodness and love to be with us. It's following, pursuing after us. Whatever's going on in your life right now, God is pursuing and he's after you. And I I just love this because it blows my mind because this seems to contradict everything that David has been telling us so far in the psalm. Because in the imagery of the first four verses, it was about God as a shepherd and us following him, wasn't it? It was about God being out front and we as his sheep follow after him and he provides and he protects and he guides us and he spent four verses trying to help us understand that we have a leader but that we need to follow him. That he's walking ahead of us and we need to follow in his footsteps and that he'll take us to green pastures, he'll take us to dark valleys, he'll restore our soul but only if we follow after him. So is David now contradicting himself when he says God is following after us? Actually, David's not contradicting himself. He's actually completing the picture. He's saying, here's the amazing thing about God. Not only do you have a shepherd who's ahead of you that you're supposed to follow, but as you follow him, he then comes on your rear guard and he follows you. He's following you. 
with his goodness, his purity, his holiness, his set-apartness, and his love, which purchases you back into a relationship with him so that you can know goodness and purity and hope again. And he, as you follow him, he's following you, and you follow him, and he's following you. And it's like this perfect picture of what it means to be surrounded by the love of a God who doesn't give up on you. And I, and I love this. It blows my mind that right at the end of the, the, the psalm, he wants to complete this idea that you are surrounded by God. If you want to be a non-anxious presence in the chaos of this world, you need to understand that you're not just got a God that you're supposed to follow and wondering what's going on behind you. You've got a God who surrounds you. I, I pulled all this together in a, in a kind of a, a funky, very basic diagram. Let me show you this basic diagram that I came up with this week. There you go. There's you in the middle. And you are, you're following God. God is leading your life. And in that, we saw in the first four verses, provision, protection, and guidance. But also, God is pursuing your life with goodness and mercy and loving kindness. And David's saying, if you see all of this, this is Psalm 23, verses 1 all the way to 6. If you see this, then you will be that non-anxious presence. You will be like, oh man, I've got a God who's all around me. I've got a God who's in front of me and behind me. And guess what he says in verse 4? He says, when you go through the valley of the shadow of death, I am with you. So I got one who's I got a God who's in front of me, I got a God who's behind me, and I got a God who's right alongside of me. Like he's everywhere. And when I get my head around the reality that I exist in the bubble of God's goodness and protection and mercy and kindness and love, I can begin to say, bring it on. Like what can happen? Like I will fear no evil. I will be released from my anxiety. I will find myself in a place where, yeah, stuff may still happen. Things might go wrong. There might be those hospital bed moments. There might be the destruction of the sanctuary by a burst water pipe. Those stuff's gonna happen in life. But my starting point, my middle point, and my end point is that I have Jesus, who is the Alpha and the Omega. If he's in front of me and he's behind me, he's got everything else sorted out in the middle, and I can go, ah. And when I go, Everybody else around me goes, huh? <laughs> and in that, in that, we get to share the gospel. But if we don't believe this, then when the storms come and the rains come and the hospital bed happens and the burst pipes happen, what testimony are we bringing to a world that desperately needs one? How are we actually saying anything about who Jesus is if we're being pushed around and tossed back and forth by every wave of everything. Now, there's something beautiful about what David's trying to communicate us, to us here. That there's another way to live. Not only that, there's another place to live. Notice what he says right at the end. I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. The word dwell here means to be rooted down, to set down, to rest down, to put roots in. It's the idea of making a home. And it's really interesting because he says, I make a home, and it's translated here in English, in the house of the Lord. The house, whenever we hear the phrase, the house of the Lord, we always think of church. Because in the Old Testament, when that phrase is generally used, the house of the Lord, it was meaning the temple. In fact, the temple was known as the house of the Lord. But what you have to understand, as David is writing Psalm 23, the temple's not built for another 15 years or so. It's actually his son that will build the temple, not him. So when he says here, the house of the Lord, he's actually not thinking about the temple or some building. In fact, the Hebrew word means the dwelling place. 
So you can understand it like this. David is literally finishing the psalm like this. I will dwell in the dwelling place of the Lord. And where is the dwelling place of the Lord? He's just told us. It's in front of us. It's with us. It's behind us. It's all around us. I will put my roots down in the presence of God. Presence of God is not defined to a church service. It's not defined to a building. It's not defined to anything. I can find the presence of God, His dwelling place, in my boardroom, in my classroom, in my relationships, in my home, and yes, hopefully, in my church. He's basically saying God is everywhere with us if we follow him and have the belief surely, without a doubt, that he's following us with forgiveness and mercy and his holiness. When he's protecting us, we can find his dwelling place wherever it is that we find ourselves. We dwell in his dwelling place. It's not until the New Testament that we get the idea that Jesus becomes the dwelling place that Jesus decides to come down to us, take on humanity in its beautiful, most purest form, fully God, fully human, tabernacling, being one. And we look to Jesus. This is why Jesus says, if you are weary and burdened, come to me and I'll give you rest. Rest, our home, the presence of God is not defined to a certain areas of the world. This world is his dwelling place. And so when you're in your businesses and you're doing your work, and you're in your homes, and you're living your life, God's as much there, that is as much his house, as this place for 90 minutes on a Sunday. And he's saying, David's saying, I will dwell. I'll put my roots down everywhere where God is. Because where he is, I'm at home. That's Psalm 23. That's what it means to be a non-anxious presence in the chaos of this world. I've got like one minute left. Here's what I'm gonna do for you. Because this is the last of the series. I'm gonna pull together, we've done this for six weeks. I'm gonna pull together on one slide all six things that define what it means to be a non-anxious presence. Now, they're gonna come up one by one. Don't take a photo too early. (laughs) But when we get to the end of it, I highly recommend you take a photo of it. Like honestly, because I wanna say this before I finish. This sermon series is not about some teaching on a Sunday and some feeling in a room. If you really want to walk this out, I truly believe God wants you to be a non-anxious presence in your workplace, in your family, wherever it is. Then you need to take this slide in a moment and you need to actually put your own work into it. What does this mean for me? How do I live this out now? How do I put steps to what we've been hearing each week? I've heard some great things, but what does that truly mean for me? And in our community groups that we have here at The Vine, in your friendship groups, in your own personal devotional time, to take these six things and ask the hard questions between you and God and allow him to change you. So here are the things. Here's my summary of Psalm 23 and all that we've been doing. This is what it means to be a non-anxious presence. We need to have the courage to let go of our tendency to take control of our world and invite God to be God again. That's Psalm 46.10. That was six weeks ago uh, when we started the series with Psalm 46. We need to walk in the conviction that in God, we have everything we truly need and we lack no good thing. That was the first week of our Psalm 23. We need to stop thinking of God as the GPS of our lives and accept that he is calling us to follow him wherever he desires to lead us. Verses two and three. 
We need to remember that sometimes the path God leads us on purposely takes us through a darkened valley to reveal to us part of his nature we could not discover in any other place. Verse four. We need to understand that true community is birthed in the labor pains of reconciliation and love. And the restoration of our broken relationships is central to our flourishing. Verse five. And finally today, we need to rest in the knowledge that God always pursues us with his goodness and his love and invites us to find our home in his presence amid the chaos of this world. Take a photo of that. (laughs) But don't just take a photo of it. My prayer for you as we finish the series is that that will be life to you, that you'll refer to that many times throughout your life, that Psalm 23 will continue to be a guide to you as you find yourself more and more at peace with him. Would you stand with me? And I wanna pray for us. Father, we just are so grateful, so grateful for our community together. We're so grateful for this psalm that has powerfully shaken us, challenged us, encouraged us, inspired us. Father, we're thankful that you are present in this moment, in this room with us. I wanna encourage you as we finish our time together in this series. As a leadership here, we want to now seal this work that God is going to do, has done through the series, but is going to do as we progress. And we wanna, as a leadership, sort of speak that over you, sort of conceal in you a promise of Scripture. And so in a moment, Emma's gonna sing a Scripture over you. And it'll be one that's familiar to you. I wanna encourage you not to sing. And I want you just to allow Emma and the team to declare something over you from Scripture. And as they do that, I want you just to receive this promise because his promise really summarizes so much of a God who pursues us and hunts us down, who loves us and is good, and a God that's here for you right now, whatever is going on in your life. So can I encourage you, if you're comfortable, just to open your hands, just to quieten your spirit. If you're online right now, same for you, just open your hands, quieten your spirit down. Resist the temptation to sing and allow us to pray over you with song. And I pray that this would be a great blessing to you.